This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Over the weekend, as our Twitter feeds filled up with footage of UPS trucks and FedEx planes chugging around the country, loaded with vaccines to fight COVID-19, my partner turned to me to ask a question. Do we need to get on a list? Like raise our hands, say, hey, we can use some vaccine over here. Fair question. I mean, I think that probably a lot of people are wondering that same thing. Sarah Overmall from over at Politico, she's been covering this vaccine rollout. She says the answer to this question is, don't call us. We'll call you. Meaning, if you're eligible for a vaccine, someone is going to let you know. I have to tell you, I hear you say this, like, they're, they're going to take care of it for you. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I'm like, are they, though? I'm so used to advocating for myself in an American system that I think it's just weird for me that it's like, OK, there's no website where I need to sign up and like there's no doctor I need to call a million times. Like, really? Because that's how America works. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. You're so used to advocating for yourself. I think, yeah, that's a that is the American healthcare system summarized. And so this is going to be a clash of many things of of the culture we're in right now, politically, the pandemic that we've all been dealing with, but also our our ideas of what the healthcare system should do and, and what our role in it is. In typical American fashion, there's not just one plan to distribute COVID vaccines in the United States. There are 50 of them, at least. Sarah's looked through a lot of them, says some are comprehensive, others not so much. I don't want to call out specific states, and I haven't looked at every single states, but um, West Virginia's draft plan was, was 37 pages, which seemed a little bit short to me. Short, in and of itself, is fine. But when you compare that West Virginia document to, say, California's, you can start to see where the problems crop up. California's got categories and subcategories of who's in the vaccine line first. It isn't just healthcare workers. It's healthcare workers broken down by their jobs, by age, by pre-existing conditions. So you see that level of detail, that granularity in California's plan. And what struck me in West Virginia's plan was that it literally was like healthcare workers and essential workers will be first. It's like, you have to define that more. That's going to get messy. <laughs> How messy? We are about to find out. Starting Monday is like really when, like... The, the rubber hits the road. We're going to find out how much this worked and what we didn't plan for. And everyone you talk to, federal to state, will admit there's going to be things that we didn't think of. Today on the show, no one's policing the line for COVID vaccines. So how will we know if the right people are getting it? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. The reason why states are putting together complicated documents laying out who will be vaccinated when is simple. 
there isn't enough to go around. The U.S. has ordered millions of doses, but even with factories working full speed ahead, it's going to take months for the shots to reach most Americans. To make the state's job easier, the Centers for Disease Control has been convening for weeks, putting together their own guidance, recommending who should be at the front of the vaccine line. For now, that's healthcare workers and people who live and work in long-term care facilities. But Sarah says making these kinds of calls gets complicated fast. You've got to choose whether you're focusing on stopping the spread of the virus or preventing deaths. We did know for a long time that it would be a limited amount of vaccines from the get and that we would have to give those to very high need populations based on both who is at most risk of severe illness and death and who is at most risk for spreading the virus. So you talk about people in nursing homes, they're at most risk for dying from the virus. But then you talk about somebody who works in food or who works um, in a hospital. They might not die from it, but they could spread it. They could be a really important sort of vector for getting it to other people. So that's the balance that we're striking is getting it to very uh, high risk people and high exposure people. I want to talk about how complicated these access decisions can be. And I felt like you could see it really clearly when the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices met up and started talking about the guidance they were going to give. Like they were voting on whether nursing home residents should be in this first wave of people getting the vaccine. And one doctor voted no, just one. But she had really interesting reasoning about why. And it made me sort of flip on my head, like all of the decisions and the ethical considerations. You know, she talked about how we don't know if it works in older people. But then also, like, if the vaccine fails in this group, it could be detrimental to the rollout for all sorts of other populations. Absolutely. I saw that conversation, too. And that was happening at their previous meetings before the vote and others who may not have voted with her in that last vote, did share her concerns in those conversations. Basically, I remember one person saying, what if grandma gets this vaccine and then she dies two days later? And it wasn't even necessarily because of the vaccine, but we don't know that. Perception can be people's reality. And so there's this really fine balance we have to strike. Yes, those people are at most need of protection, but could we actually harm the national public health interest by putting those people in the first group. It's a very pragmatic but emotional conversation to have. And I think that that's going to come down to, in reality, what gets done in each state and also what nursing home patients themselves want to be doing, which is going to be a hard question for them as well. Part of what this committee is considering isn't just who needs the vaccine the most, but how complicated it's going to be to deliver it to them. This first vaccine, the one from Pfizer, it requires two doses. And it's easier to give a shot like that to healthcare workers and people in long-term care. The vaccine can simply meet them where they live or work. But that's not true for others, like workers in food service. Think about how essential they are. Think about how often you've ordered food for delivery, right? Um, It's important that this group of people gets vaccinated, but they could be anyone in a wide range from an Uber driver to a dishwasher at a restaurant to somebody who's working undocumented to wait staff. And then you think about the way that they work, the fact that they work hourly. So if they're going to go and get a vaccine, that could cut into their hours. If they get sick, we know that, you know, the vaccines can cause headaches. They can even sometimes cause fever the day after. And then they're not getting paid. 
Exactly. So they don't want to be going, why would they go and get a vaccine that can make them sick and make them lose money? How are we going to get those populations in the door to get vaccinated when they are a very important part of our structure and of group immunity? I think that's going to be a massive task. You know, Black and brown Americans have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And there's been this robust debate about whether race should be a deciding factor in terms of who has access to the vaccine and how. How is that playing out? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So it's come up in the federal conversations like that CDC panel uh, about how to include, you know, approaching addressing these disparities, which it's worth noting, is the first time a conversation like that has happened before that panel. State plans are trying to address that. So Kaiser Family Foundation put together sort of an analysis of um, states' draft plans, and they found that 53% of them um, have at least one mention of incorporating racial or ethnic minorities or health equity considerations in their framework for distribution. Um, So a coin flip. Yeah, basically a little over half, little over half of the states. And then they also are doing that in very different ways. So some of them are incorporating uh, racial or ethnic minorities through these job targets that we just talked about, like including food workers and hospital cleaning staff in high priority groups because uh, those are disproportionately people of color working in those jobs. Others are using the social vulnerability index, which is a way of indirectly addressing it. So for instance, Black populations have disproportionately higher uh, rates of heart conditions or diabetes than other uh, communities. And so if you say that we need to prioritize these groups, you're addressing it in that way. So you can see that there's different approaches that they're making. Um, One other really important consideration that several states are including is just how they actually do this in distribution sites. Like, are they going to put these sites in areas that are easier for communities of color to reach that have good public transportation to them uh, that, you know, are in maybe even community centers that have, that are employing um, community leaders that are well-trusted by people. These conversations are happening in all sorts of states right now. That social vulnerability index, it just makes me wonder, like, is it then you're showing up and you're like, well, I've got diabetes, I have these other characteristics, I deserve a vaccine. Like, how does that work then? Yeah, that's a complicated one, too. It's going to come down to, um, you know, kind of your relationship with the healthcare system, which is another difficult barrier. And so, again, going back to a, a question you asked earlier, you know, are we supposed to put ourselves on a list? When do we know our time is up? That, again, comes back to the public outreach that happens on the state and local levels. And so telling people that if you have diabetes, it's very important that you get this vaccine and also you can get it right now. That's going to have to happen with healthcare providers, with community leaders. And there's going to be ways that the local governments primarily are going to have to do that outreach. But it is difficult, and it's not going to be a very clean system. It's not like we're going to say, okay, we did priority group one, now we do priority group two. Like It's not going to be checking boxes off of a list. It's going to be a little bit more nuanced than that, I think. My understanding is that that CDC advisory committee, they're going to meet up again to make more recommendations about who's next after this first round. Is that right? Yes. So they made their first recommendations on Saturday just for the Pfizer vaccine. And that was literally healthcare workers, long-term care facilities, um, people 
16 and older, those are the priorities. Those are who can use them. They are going to be making more recommendations for the next waves of people, but also for the next waves of vaccines. I think the details start to get a little bit messier as you start to move down the chain. So who counts as an essential worker? What essential workers are going to go before other ones? Um, you know, firefighters, EMTs, sure, they should be in the first priority group. But but where do teachers go? Uh, what, what, how essential are they compared to other people? It starts to get more messy as you go down the line, I think, especially when you get to these vulnerabilities that we've talked about, like with health conditions, what vulnerabilities are, in a sense, more important. That's not the way that the question should be asked, but that's going to be what happens when there's a very limited amount of vaccines and, and decisions have to be made. When we come back, now that vaccines are heading out into the real world, how are these ethical guidelines going to be enforced. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Over the weekend, there was all this video that came out of Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine. You saw factory workers clapping as it left the plant in Michigan and FedEx planes loaded up on the tarmac. And, and it seems to me that what happens next is so, so complex. Like Pfizer was even doing rehearsals over the last few weeks. Is that right? Yes. Yes. They've been doing rehearsals. And honestly, they and the federal government and state governments and FedEx, you know, distributors, they've all been planning for this for months. There's been hundreds of millions of dollars federally spent just on these distribution challenges, not even uh, vaccine development, which has been another huge billions of dollars worth of federal spending, but but now on, on distribution, which will be the next biggest challenge, like you said. Can you lay out how the chain of custody works? Like, in terms of who has possession of the vaccine along the line, I was surprised, but then it also made total sense to me that like as soon as it left Pfizer, like now it's going to FedEx, now it's going to Walgreens. And I was like, what? It's not like it's going to the state warehouse necessarily. It's going somewhere else. And that's how we're doing it in America. And it looks pretty different, I think, than it does in, say, the UK. Yeah, it looks different in America than it does in other countries, for sure. And I think that part of that was that when federal regulators were looking at this, when the Pentagon, which has been handling the logistics of this, has been looking at it, they said, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We have uh, FedEx, we have Walgreens, CBS, and sure, they are private companies, but they are used to daily moving millions and millions of important products. And ensure the coronavirus vaccine is more important than many of those products. But um, we can rely to a certain extent on these companies to get up off the ground with this very quickly without having to establish some whole new organization. Or, you know, if the 
Pentagon, if the National Guard was actually to physically get involved beyond just the logistics planning that they're doing, there's an image problem there too, I think. You don't want to see the army roll into town with Humvees and start handing out vaccines. That's not going to help in a society where people are already skeptical. They already feel like there's been a rush on things. So if people are getting it from you know, their local CVS or Walgreens, if this is something that's being rolled out in a familiar way, if it's at their community center, even if it's at their church, something like that, I think that also contributes to the national trust. Partnering with private industry, it's also meant to make coordinating logistics easier for the states who've been handed a massive assignment. When they hand out the vaccine, the states are supposed to be following these CDC guidelines. And they, of course, have their own individual state plans, too. But does a state have to follow these guidelines? Like, what's no, what's the punishment not. if they don't? <laughs> There's no punishment. I mean, guidelines are guidelines. The CDC cannot watch over their shoulder and say, you know, you have to do it this way. And states, it ultimately is up to them because they have their own distinct populations, their own needs within their populations. And, you know, the federal government shouldn't be making those calls for them. States are kind of more comfortable making those calls themselves. But that also means they were probably going to get a patchwork of realities across the country. So we could feasibly see one state moving into a different population before another state gets there, or one state deciding that essential workers include, you know, teachers, where another state might not put teachers very high up on their list. And so we could have sort of this this mix there that might frustrate people or might even... uh, cause a little bit of distrust or or sense of unfairness in the system. And I say that after conversations with public health experts. I mean, states are obviously trying to mitigate that. But when it comes down to it, they're each going to have to handle this their own way. Does it concern you that at the same time the states are being given this enormous task, many of them, their state budgets are a disaster? After the coronavirus, they're just headed to a, a place they haven't been before. Yes, that is a very big concern. And um, if you talk to state governors, they will tell you that that's been a concern um, that they've been keeping on their plates for a long time now. Uh, One problem there is that we haven't actually had a coronavirus package uh, approved by Congress and sent to the president's desk in months now. And the president hasn't really shown much interest in the conversations that have been happening around kind of a final plan that goes out before his term ends, because there are a lot of really sticky questions as a part of that that include all these funding questions that we're talking about. Who do you allot this money to? It's going to be another at least trillion dollars and and who wins and who loses is not an easy thing to put together. But it is very notable that we're having this conversation about distribution, about an unprecedented state outreach on every level starting this week. And we haven't had a new funding package since this spring. The Wall Street Journal said in New York alone, they're estimating it's going to be $1 billion. And most of that is personnel costs, like not the stuff that the federal government has already agreed to pay for. Yeah, that that doesn't surprise me. And like you said, you made an important distinction. The federal government has agreed to pay for the vaccines themselves. They continue to promise that there will be no charge to any American to get the vaccine. That's an important part of people getting in the door to get it. But there's all these other costs that go with that. Administration costs, the staff that has to be at these health facilities, at these commercial pharmacies when it eventually gets there. It's going to be another 
you know, set of costs, some unforeseen that we don't know yet, uh, that, that states will bear the burden of at this time. We've never actually done something like this before. So states can have 100-page plans, but when you get to the day-to-day, there isn't a red line saying this person's in priority group 1A and this person's in 1B. That's not how it's going to work. It it will come down to a lot of human judgment um, that isn't reflected in those plans. Sarah Overmall, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. This is a great conversation. Sarah Overmall writes about healthcare over at Politico. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, Davis Land, and Mary Wilson. We're getting some help this week from Franny Kelly. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can find me on Twitter. I'm over at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> 